0: All right, we've got such a special treat this evening. Um, I got to meet uh, Brother Malcolm. I want to say it's been seven, eight years ago. He spoke in our fellowship hall. Um, Jim Harcum, who was one of our elders at the time, uh, arranged to have him come and uh, look forward to him coming. We've tried to work this out sometime at the end of last year, and it just kind of fell through, and it just wouldn't work out. But I believe it's God's timing today for us to be able to hear um the state of where the state of Israel is the nation of Israel and if you didn't know our church uh sends money to the, to this ministry the international christian embassy um every month and we've been a support of this this ministry for i would guess going on maybe 10 years i'm not real sure that's just me uh guessing but if you would please welcome the director of the international christian embassy brother malcolm hill I'm sorry, Malcolm Heading. Let me apologize real quick. We've got a pastor in our church named Malcolm Hill. Go ahead and stand up. Go ahead and stand up. Do that right. I ruined that. Amen. Forgive me. We've got a pastor in our town named Malcolm Hill, and that just slipped out. So, Brother Malcolm Heading.
1: Well, thank you so much, Pastor Paul. Good evening, everybody. It's a great joy to be with you tonight. And uh, thank you so much for the invitation to share with you from the Word of God tonight and to update you a little on the events that are unfolding in Israel as we gather here. And thank you for the years of your support. Uh, we appreciate it, we don't take it for granted. And uh, we value and fully understand the importance of the local church. I, too, am a minister of the Assemblies of God of Southern Africa. And I've been involved in church planting for most of my life. And I believe that the local church is the key and the center of the purpose of God in the world today. Organizations like the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem are specific target organizations, uh, almost pioneering organizations, in order to achieve a breakthrough in the will and the purpose of God. It is true that the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem uh, pioneered a revolution in Jewish-Christian relationships, not only in Israel but all over the world. We have a global constituency of 14 million people, and that is not evangelistically speaking. Uh, We know that to be a very conservative and true figure, because in the year 2000, we held a petition that Jerusalem should remain the eternal, undivided capital of the Jewish people. And this petition was taken up amongst our own family of members which spans 114 countries, as I've just said, and that petition drew 14 million endorsements. And we then presented it to the then mayor of the city of Jerusalem, who was Ehud Olmert, who later went on to become the prime minister. The organization was founded in 1980, when Jerusalem declared by its Knesset, in the city, that the city is indeed the eternal capital of the Jewish people. As a consequence, 13 foreign embassies withdrew from Jerusalem in protest, and they relocated themselves in the city of Tel Aviv on the coast. And as a consequence to that, there were a number of evangelical Christian leaders all over the world and living in Jerusalem who decided that this issue is not a political issue it is indeed a biblical issue and that the Christian world had to take a stand and this was a unique opportunity and moment in history for the evangelical Christian world to get up and make a significant impact on the state of Israel by opening an embassy and that is the history of the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem from that day to the present. It has grown to be, in every sense of the word, a global organization. It is responsible and probably best known for the annual Christian celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, which happens to be Israel's largest annual solidarity mission or tourist event. But that is by no means the extent of what we do. In fact, it's just a small part of it, but it captures the public attention because it is such a huge and such a magnificent uh, convocation of God's children in the great city of Jerusalem over a period of eight days during the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And of course, we've had on our platform speakers from all over the world and uh, It's been a wonderful time to bring the body of Christ together in unity in the great city of Jerusalem, and of course you are invited this year to attend again. I want to then just draw your attention to the fact that we do have a table outside with books and pamphlets and brochures on it by which you can more fully acquaint yourself with the nature of our organization and our ministry. But I would like to turn to the Word of God. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful presence in this place tonight. We gather here as your blood-washed children, trusting only in the finished work on the cross for our salvation. And we pray that you would, in this evening, illuminate the pages of your Word, that we again may be warmed in our hearts and stirred to serve you better. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to share just a few points with you tonight and hopefully conclude with giving you something of an update of where we are at present as to the plan and the purpose of God. The story of Israel really is in many ways your story and my story Because without the Jewish people, we would not be here tonight. We've just had a beautiful evening already whereby we've worshipped the Jewish Messiah. And uh, we know he's here. It's been wonderful just to come in and uh, sense his presence in the worship. Really sweet and wonderful. So tonight we gather in the midst with one another and with the Jewish Messiah present, a man who loves his people, a God-man who gave his life for the world and for his own people, a man who has suffered rejection, a man of sorrows, but a man who did it all because he loved us all and gave himself for us. And central to Israel's journey tonight is Jesus of Nazareth. He is at the center of everything that is unfolding in Israel as we gather here. And the story of the Jewish people and our story really begins in the book of Genesis. And I want to take you through just a few points tonight. And the first one is foundations. Some of what I'm going to say is well known to you because I believe you are a Bible-based church. And these things have not happened in a corner. And so you are acquainted with them. But the watershed of biblical history is indeed Genesis chapter 12. Because in Genesis chapter 12, we have recorded the movement of God toward humanity. And that's a wonderful thing. And that's a mysterious thing because it is so wonderful. And it teaches us that nobody ever found Jesus or found God because he wasn't lost. Amen. He found us. Now, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I understand how it feels. And I equally tell people I found Jesus uh, many, many years ago. I can't even remember when it was. 1970, was it? Anyway, I found Jesus. But in essence, he found me. I didn't find him. But it felt like I found him. And he came looking for me, and he found me in the jungle of my sin, and he transformed my life, as he did yours. But Genesis 12 tells us that he came looking for the human race in a peculiar way. And by that, he found a Gentile living in Ur of the Chaldees, whose name was Abram. And with this individual, the dawn of world redemption broke upon humanity. And this encounter of God with Abraham or Abram at the time is recorded in Genesis 12 and the first three verses. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there is a long view in this call of God over Abraham. That is, the initiative through him has the world in mind. And it teaches us that essentially Israel never existed as an end in herself. But the people of Israel exist as a means to an end. And they're the only nation really upon the face of the earth that has this supernatural origin. That God plucks a man who is an idol manufacturer and a Gentile out of history and then so works in him to produce a nation from him, and all of this for the redemption of the whole world. So this indeed is a very unique and wonderful thing. I remember a few months ago we, we attended a Shabbat service in a town near Bethlehem called Ephrat. And we were the guests of a rabbi there. And this rabbi is quite well known. He's very well disposed towards Christians. His name is Rabbi Riskin. And the night that we attended the Shabbat service, he had about 15 or 20 mature age rabbi candidates. He has a whole school that trains rabbis and sends them out into the world and, uh, and so on. And they were seated there around the Shabbat table, and I was the only goy Christian. <laughs> I love those circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they began to talk, of course, about my presence very quickly. Who's this goy? He is a reverend. Whoa, he's a reverend. Okay. And eventually, the subject matter turned to the question of missionary work, the big M word in Israel. Those of you who lived in Israel know about it. (laughs) And one of the rabbis got up and said, well, you know, we are not a missionary religion. And uh, he sat down, and the conversation was very warm and friendly, and I said, you shocked me. There was like this silence over the table suddenly. I said, how can you say such a thing? How can you say such a thing? Because when I read your story in the book of Isaiah and Abraham, you were the greatest missionary nation ever called on earth. In fact, you should have reached me with the message and how can you sit here tonight and tell me that all you do is in reach and you don't care about the Goyim or me? And you know, that's why I said, and that's why a Jew found me. <laughs> it's wonderful how God opens up these opportunities to share. The point is, that's true. You see, Israel was called to be a missionary organization. A light to the Gentiles. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, time and time again in the book of Isaiah. And he talks about them as being the servant of the Lord. We know that that applies uniquely to Jesus, but those are the paradoxes of Scripture all the time, as we shall see in a moment here as well. But Israel also was called as the missionary nation of the world. And this is an adventure of salvation. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The blessing that the word of God speaks of there, according to the apostle Paul, is not socioeconomic blessing. Though many believers would love it to mean that. The blessing it speaks about is the blessing of salvation. And when Paul speaks about this verse and actually quotes it in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, he says this was the first time that God really preached the gospel to Abraham. When he said, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Meaning a gospel of redemption and salvation in Christ. So the dawn of Israel's Existence of a nation began the story of world redemption. And it's interesting in Genesis that God makes two promises. And this is the paradox. <clears throat> two promises. And with this twofold promise, many in the church of God have played the fool. And I say that carefully played the fool. To their own ruin. So in Genesis 17 and reading from verse 6, we find the Abrahamic covenant is reaffirmed as it is many times in these early passages of Genesis. But in chapter 17, from verse 6, it says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants, plural, after you in their generations, plural, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants, plural, after you, the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So here we have this promise to the Jewish people that they will not only exist as a nation, but they would secondly inherit a land, a peculiar, particular portion of land upon the face of the earth that God says is not their land, it's his land. He will allow them to have it on his behalf forever. And he makes this promise to their generations. And with that then is the third idea in the text that this nation cannot be destroyed. They will have everlasting existence in the sense, naturally speaking, as a nation, not in the sense of eternal life. They will go on through the generations. As long as we have this present dispensation, the Jewish people will be here. That's the point. They cannot be destroyed. They will not be destroyed. Because the God of the Bible is their guarantee of existence. And we've seen that through history. So there's this thought of the nation existing, And there's the thought of the nation inheriting land through their generations. And God makes this promise to them. And in this thought, there's also the idea in Genesis 12 that because of the specific call over their national destiny, because of the specific call of God over their national destiny, destiny, and that is to be the vehicle of world redemption, then God will bless those who bless them, and he will curse those who curse them, because to curse them is to work against the eternal plan of God for world redemption. To bless them is to work with God's purpose for the redemption of the world. Then in Genesis 22, there's this reaffirmation again. And this is a very interesting time because of the event that took place beforehand, which is the sacrifice of Isaac. We all know that God told Abraham to take Isaac to Mount Moriah. And then on that holy mountain to kill him and the imagery of Genesis 22 is quite remarkable because they get to the place of which they have been speaking and they put wood on Isaac's back and only he and Abraham go to the pinnacle of Mount Moriah <clears throat> and once they're there we know that Abraham kills him. Now of course We understand that he didn't actually plunge the knife into his heart. But the book of Hebrews says he received Isaac back from the dead. Why? Because he killed him with his heart and not with his hand. Isaac was dead. I'm telling you, that knife was not only through his heart, but was out the other side into the wood. He killed him. And... At that point, something incredible happened to Abraham because he was taken up in the spirit of God. Exactly how we do not know, but he was transported 2,000 years into the future. And he found himself again at exactly the same place. But only now there was a city and there were walls and there were thousands and actually hundreds of thousands of people because it was the celebration of Pesach or Passover. And he was just outside the city at a place where there was an outcrop of stone that looked like a skull. And he saw a tumult coming out of one of the gates near to him, people spilling out of the gates, screaming and shouting and heckling, and spitting, and hurling abuse, and laughing. And he saw there were soldiers. And as he looked through the crowd and this tumult, he then saw an individual. And as he looked more clearly to see who this was, he saw that he had wood on his back. And when he cleared his eyes a bit more, he noticed that it was Isaac. And Isaac was carrying this crossbeam and he was bloodied all over, and there was blood gouging out of his torso because his ribcage <clears throat> had been torn, the skin and tissue had been torn from it, and he had a crown of thorns, and he was bleeding everywhere, and he fell into the dirt and his blood, and his spittle mixed with the dust and the dirt, and they kicked him, and they laughed at him, and the soldiers prodded him on, and And they mocked him and Abraham looked at the spectacle and he saw Isaac dragging the wood. And eventually he watched until they put Isaac on the wood and they rammed nails through his hands and his feet. And they hoisted him up between heaven and earth. And as Abraham looked upon the spectacle, the Bible says that something strange happened to him because it dawned on him. As he gazed at Isaac, that he was watching the redemption of the world because Isaac's face changed to that of his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Jesus of Nazareth. And Abraham stood there in the rain and the darkness and the lightning and the blood pouring down, and he realized the very unique and unbelievable call that God had placed upon the Jewish people this mission recall was actually turned out to be far greater, far more serious, far more demanding than he had ever thought. And so Jesus made mention of this. That's how I know the story is true that I've told you. Because in John chapter 8 and verse 56, when he was sparring with his detractors, his Jewish detractors, he said to them, Abraham saw my day. And he saw it. And was glad. And he rejoiced in it. It's unbelievable. So Abraham saw the day of Jesus' first coming as a sacrificial lamb. It could only have been when he was there with Isaac. And the testimony of Genesis 22 confirms that. I don't know whether you've ever seen it. And it's the other paradox of the descendant that Paul refers to in Galatians. This is the reference that Paul refers to in Galatians 3. Genesis 22. Now, this is the story of Isaac. And listen to the wording. It's absolutely unbelievable. Verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham, a second time out of heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord. It's the interesting play. The angel of the Lord is the Lord. It's uh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Amen? And uh, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Remember, his son was supernaturally born. Picture of Christ. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of your enemies. And in your seed singular, in your seed singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Paul picks up on that in Galatians 3 when he's not arguing about the existence of the Jewish people or the veracity of the Abrahamic covenant, but he's arguing about the way of salvation. And Paul's theological position is this that there's only and ever been one way of salvation, and that is by faith in Jesus. And that not only was Abraham saved in that way, the father of world redemption, but that the coming of Jesus, the seed, had that in mind, and that the law, which came 400 years later, did not cancel out the promised coming of the seed as a way of salvation by faith. Because the law actually is our tutor to lead us to Christ, to lead us to the seed. The only way you will know about sin is through the law. And that's why when nations and Western nations begin to take the Ten Commandments off the corridors of their houses of government and institutions, of local governance, then you know we're on the way to hell because there's no reminder of sin in the corridors of our world. By the, by the law, says Paul, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, comes the knowledge of sin. So here in Genesis 22, you have this remarkable promise of Jesus And it's linked to the sacrifice of Isaac. That the unique and peculiar mission of the Jewish people is the deliverance of Jesus to the world. I want you to remember that statement. The unique and peculiar reason for the existence of the Jewish people is the deliverance of Jesus to the world. For that, God had to have generations... Seeds and land so that the seed could in the fullness of time arrive and die for the world. Israel exists for Jesus and his proclamation. I want you to hear that. Israel exists for Jesus and his proclamation. And that is the unique mission that Israel has been fulfilling in the last 2,000 years. Did you know that? Israel has been an incredible preacher of Jesus. That got you baffled a bit, didn't it? Israel has been an incredible preacher of Jesus. And the reason we say that is how many of you, I'm going to take you on a little journey to the answer. How many of you have ever heard of a song, this is the day that the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. How many of you have ever sung that song? There you are, you can put your hands up. You will have to confess your sins now afterwards, but you can put your hands up for the present. And when we usually sang that song, we did it in this context, you see, that it's raining today, it's miserable, it's cold, I'm going I'm to hurl my torso out of bed, drag myself to church, I'm going to say to my soul, listen, this is the day the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Well, Do you know that that is absolutely nonsense? Now, I don't mind the pretext. Again, I'm not a doctrinaire guy. So, it's a good principle. And it's probably a good scripture to base your false doctrine upon, but that's okay. I'm not kidding. I'll show it to you. I wouldn't lead you astray. I'm an Assemblies of God minister actually that's a total pretext the context of that scripture has nothing to do with that it's got nothing to do with the weather nothing to do with the house of god nothing to do with dragging yourself out of bed and getting to church nothing to do about looking up and say anyway i'm going to bless the lord today even if it's snowing Absolutely nothing to do with it. It has to do with this little pendant. It's in Hebrew. And the context is the following. The stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is marvelous in our eyes. It is of the Lord. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Did you hear that? So what is the day that we rejoice and are glad in? It's the day of Israel's rejection of Jesus' messianic credentials. Why? Because as long as Israel is held back, from moving forward in the redemptive initiative. You can get saved. Your family can get saved. Your husband and your wife can get saved. Your children can get saved. So indirectly, Israel is one of the most astonishing preachers of the gospel. It is the day... Which the Lord has made. It's a day of salvation for the nations. And this is the mysterious theology of Paul in Romans 11. He says, Because of their unbelief, you've been saved. And he says in verse 30 of the same chapter that we've received salvation and the mercy of God because of their disobedience. They've been a proclaimer of the gospel by their unbelief, which God says is a day to rejoice in. Which is amazing. Which is exactly biblical. So we wouldn't be in this beautiful house of God tonight if it wasn't for the unbelief of the Jewish people that rejected the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118, verse 22. To verse 24, for those of you who want to see it, and be assured that I lie to you not. I'll read it again. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So when last did you rejoice and express gladness because of Israel's unbelief? That's a good question. He says it's the day the Lord has made and one we rejoice in. It's quoted, of course, in the book of Hebrews and other passages of the New Covenant Scriptures. So Genesis 22, you see, talks about the seed. Genesis 17, about the seeds. And Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 3, That God has only and always had one way of salvation. And that is by repentance and faith in the finished work of Jesus. We are not dispensationalists. That's his argument. That's his argument. There's only been one way of salvation from the dawn of redemption to the present. And those who lived before Christ looked forward to him and were saved by faith. They were not saved by the law. No one ever got saved by the law, according to Paul. And we who live after Christ look back. And we see more fully the blessings that God had for us. But we are saved by faith. Listen to what Paul might have said. We're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but it could have been Paul. Speaking about people who died before Jesus actually came. Hebrews 11 and verse 13. These all died in faith. Not in the law. These all died in? Faith. You know what the word faith means? It means faith. It's amazing how we miss these things. Not having, not having received the promises so they didn't see the reality. But having seen them afar off were what? Assured of them. They saw the shadow of Jesus and his promise. They embraced it by faith because they were assured of it. Embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And Paul's defense in Romans, that wonderful book where he sets out to prove that righteousness is gained not by the law or by works, but by faith alone. His defense rests on two great Jewish fathers who existed before Jesus, and the one is Abraham again, and the other is David. And he says both of these gentlemen were saved by faith, the one before the law was given, the one after the law was given. That's his point. You can read that. Now, all this means that those are the foundations... Of Israel and her call I've taken a little bit of time to get there because it's important for us to do it but it does mean then that we have obligations if all this is true we have obligations to the Jewish people and the chief obligation is to bless them and that means to not work against them, to understand the reason for their existence, the nature of their journey, and to leave judgment and vindication to God. <clears throat> it is true that the call of God over the nation of Israel. Broader into conflict with the powers of darkness like no other nation on the face of the earth. And that's why in Revelation 12, where the Bible speaks about Israel, clearly, the woman clothed with the sun, the moon, and the stars, who gives birth to a male child, in other words, brings the Messiah into the world. All of this is a picture from Genesis 37 of Joseph and his 11 brothers and his mother and father, the sun and the moon. You know the story. But John not only sees the woman there who is pregnant. She births the ultimate purpose of God into the world or the seed. But he also sees a great dragon with many heads who opposes the woman through history. And these many heads heads are the great Gentile kingdoms of the world that have arisen to destroy the Jewish people. So there is a suffering in Israel that is demonic and entirely supernatural. But there's also a suffering in Israel as we all know, which is because of her own disobedience and rebellion against the will and the purpose of God. And that's why you have two exiles. And you can read the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the major and minor prophets, and and you quickly understand this. But ultimately, the lesson throughout history is that when men and women seek, to destroy the Jewish people, they find themselves in conflict with the God of heaven. It's a dangerous place to be in. And many have tried it. And sadly, many are trying it today. And that's why we've often said, and I'll say it again, that Ahmadinejad will have to remove God from his throne before he removes Israel from the face of the earth. He has a major problem. But he's trying. <clears throat> he's an he's a anti-type, you know, or, or he's, a, he's, a, he's a type, shall I say, of that little horn of Daniel. They come up through history. Hitler was another type. And uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was another one. These boasting people with a vocabula- vocabulary and a power of oratory that is absolutely incredible. And I remember a few years ago I was preaching and travelling in Austria. And uh, just a few days earlier, the Over Salzburg had opened up. Now you might not know what the Over Salzburg is, but I'll tell you what it is. It's on the Austrian-German border in the Alps. It's on the German side of the border, just on the German side. And <clears throat> it's high up in the Alps. It's otherwise called the Eagle's Nest where Hitler hung out during the Second World War. And it's totally preserved, did you know that? It's like it was. But they closed it to the public for decades because they were worried that it might become a place of adoration or homage or pilgrimage for neo-Nazis. And below the eagle's nest in the same place is an underground city that Hitler built. Un- unbelievable. We walked through it. You just cannot believe it. So we went to visit this place. <clears throat> and uh, they had audio tapes there of Hitler's speeches. They have, a mu- they have like an educational facility th- there now in all this underground city and everything. And it's called the documentation. So it's against Nazism. And you can listen to these speeches and they they translate them into English. You put a headphone on and you hear, I'm telling you something. This guy could speak, eh? I mean, if this guy was saved, he would have been a great preacher. I mean, this guy could speak. If you sat under his oratory, you would be moved if you didn't have your act together. Evil people have a power that is amazing. And I never forget feeling this overwhelming sense of power emanating from him as you listen to him. And the Bible talks about these small people who have this ability. And Ahmadinejad's another one. And Antiochus Epiphanes was another one. They called him the illustrious one, the shining one, because he had this ability to to the gift of the gap, put it that way. And uh, the journey of the Jewish people then has been a unique one. And God has dealt with them in history according to his justice and righteousness. But he's also used the unbelief, as I said, as a powerful strange preacher of the gospel. Now, as I bring this to an end, I want us to go to Luke chapter 1. Is everybody with me? And we read... From verse 30, Luke chapter 1, verse 30, and to verse 33. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Wow, this is really nice. I can look up there and just read it. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. This makes a preacher lazy. I'm worried about you, Paul. <clears throat> this is too good, brother. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's the Annunciation. Who's been to Israel? Raise your hand. See, many of you have to repent of your sins here tonight. I can see that. Well, in Nazareth, you can go to the Church of Annunciation. And it's a beautiful church, and they've actually built it over an excavation of early biblical Nazareth. It's quite amazing. Why is this passage important? <clears throat> because somehow Christians have got the idea that salvation has to do with when Jesus came the first time and that's it. Now, how many of you are saved tonight? This is not a trick question. <clears throat> <laughs> I'm also saved. But actually, as I look over you, I can see that you're definitely not saved. And uh, I, I can see, some of you I know more intimately than others. And some of my friends here that I know from elsewhere, like those from McMinnville and others from Knoxville, I can see you got more wrinkles this year than you had last year. You know, you are definitely not saved, Betsy. I don't know what's going on with you, but (laughs) Betsy's what, 90? (laughs) 84. When I first met Betsy, let me tell you, she was this sharp, young-looking thing, eh? (laughs) Not that she's not not sharp. I promise you one thing, she's not this young-looking thing, though. (laughs) She's not saved. That's her problem. She's not saved. I know that a few of you play golf, but I promise you now, you're not playing golf like you did 20 years ago. You're not hitting as far as you were 20 years ago because you're not saved. <clears throat> That's why. I mean... I used to do the most incredible physical things. You won't believe it. I even got colors at high school for athletics. (laughs) It seems like a joke now. (laughs) Can hardly run around the block because I'm not saved. And you might laugh, but you better laugh at yourself. Because this thing of salvation, friends, has to do ...with two comings of Jesus. Amen. And your body needs to be saved. Now you are saved, but you're not saved. because, Because the effects of death are definitely evident on your body. Whether you like it or not. And you can use as much cream as you like, ladies... You can go to the Dead Sea and use all that Ahava cream down there. You can put buckets of it on your head and do whatever you want to do. You can even put that mud from the Dead Sea all over your body. I promise you, you are not going to be saved. If Jesus doesn't come, you are dead. And people like me will stand at your graveside and say nice things about you. Because salvation has to do with Jesus. And that's why his coming is the blessed hope, because Paul says this mortality will put on immortality. That's why in Thessalonians 4, what does he do? What's the context of Thessalonians 4? It's not the second coming of Jesus, did you know that? The second coming of the, the context of second of 1 Thessalonians 4 <clears throat> is a funeral service. That's the truth. I'll read it to you. But I do not want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep. That is they've died. ...because they are not saved. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again... ...even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So when will he bring them with him? For this we say to you by the word of the Lord... ...that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord... ...will by no means precede those who are asleep. That is, who have died and have decomposed. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, in the context, at a funeral service, when a believer dies, Comfort one another with these words. This is not about the rapture or the timing of the rapture and all that stuff. And you know? It's amazing how we love to get things out of context. It's actually about being saved. I want you to know, he says, that if you've believed in Jesus and your spirit and your soul are saved and sanctified, then at the coming of Jesus, when he comes again, your body will join the party. Amen. Then you will truly be saved. Then, wonderful. You will have an immortal body that will be fit for eternity. My dear friends, the second coming of Jesus. Is triggered by the Jewish people, according to Paul. They are God's God's birthing people. They will deliver the king. They will bring him back to the planet. They brought him to the planet the first time, they will bring him the second time because salvation is not complete. and when god came and spoke to mary and said you are going to birth a savior she went the angel of the lord went beyond the incarnation and said he will be the coming king with his children And he will sit on his father David's throne. In other words, his work is completed in two phases. By his first coming and by his second coming. And then Paul speaks to the Gentile church. In the book of Romans. Tell me something, Paul. Does that actual ha- thing have peppermints in it? Or is it there for beautification? Okay. <laughs> it's there to help that dead part of his body again. You see. <clears throat> I'm just wondering. I mean, Preachers love pulpits. They look at them. You see quite a nice one here. Not bad. Okay. Paul writes to the Gentile Christians. Not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to the believers in Rome who were Gentile. And he's talking to them about the Jewish people. And the reason why and how come is for another sermon another day. Hopefully not eight years away. (laughs) Anyway, he says... For I speak to you Gentiles, verse 13. I want to see if that wonderful miracle thing there works. Okay. Romans 11 and verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. There you are. We have it. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if they're being cast away, now listen to this. For if they're being cast, remember who he's writing to. For if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world. That is, you were reconciled, they became a preacher to you. You got it? If they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world, the day the Lord has made, that we'll be glad and rejoice in, What will their acceptance be but what? Life from the dead. Other translations say resurrection from the dead. Same thing. For if their first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Thank you. And that's a very interesting statement. For if, A negative in Israel, if their rejection of Jesus led to you, I'm writing to you, you Gentiles, led to you being reconciled, the door opened, God held them back so that there could be a proclamation of the gospel to the nations. Israel exists or Jesus, even by her unbelief. So if a negative in Israel, the rejection of Jesus' messianic credentials, leads to the reconciling or the salvation of the world, what is going to happen to that world that has been saved if a positive happens in Israel? That is, when Israel returns... To her Messiah. And she will return. Because. The, the lump is holy. I'll explain that. What will happen? If reconciliation happened through a negative. Through a positive. There will be resurrection from the dead. Israel exists. To deliver Jesus. And when she comes to faith in Jesus. Your body will get saved. hallelujah, hallelujah, that's what he says. And that's why Jesus said to the Jewish people, you won't see me again on this mountain, physically, visibly, until you say, blessed art thou who comes in the name of the Lord. She brings back the king. But by her salvation, according to Paul, she unleashes resurrection on the body of Christ. I didn't say it. He said it. And that's why he gets to the punchline in verse 25 and 26 where he says for i do not desire brethren meaning you gentile brethren that you should be ignorant of this mystery don't be stupid about this he says lest you should be wise in your own opinion <clears throat> and the church has with all its replacement theology and schemes by which they disinherit the jewish people of any further involvement in the plan of God for world redemption. That is, they disinvest Israel of a national destiny in the land of Canaan. And thereby exclude and disconnect themselves from one of the greatest acts of God in human history, the modern-day restoration of Israel. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until what? There's the preacher again. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he'll turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he tells them, don't for one moment think that their unbelief is settled. And don't for one moment think that God has removed from them that original call that he gave to them in Abraham. In fact, he says, their reconciliation will unleash resurrection on the people of God. I always say to people, I don't argue about what your eschatology may or may not be. But one thing's for sure. Any eschatology that divorces the church from the redemption of Israel is wrong, according to Paul. The church starts with Israel, it will end with the Jewish people. It starts with them as a birthing mechanism, It will end with them as a a birthing mechanism. And when they are returned and recovered spiritually, there will be resurrection from the dead. Tonight, as we gather here, Israel has existed in the land of Israel for more than 60 years. Before she came back, the land of Israel was a neglected, malaria-infested wasteland. And Jerusalem was a third-rate, flea-bitten city, and nobody cared for her. And Mark Twain, as you know, an American adventurer, traveled through that region in the late 19th century and said there were hardly any people there, there were no trees there, the place was a forgotten wasteland. He said, you cannot even believe that this was once the land of the Bible where all these incredible things happened. Where a temple stood in all her glory and and a city of Jerusalem was golden and it just was, he said, you you must be mad. Little did he know the purpose of God will always win out. And since the Jews have come home, there is a global storm against the Jewish people. You could call it a perfect storm. And as we gather here tonight, it's gathering momentum because the Israeli Arab conflict is not solvable. Great politicians have tried over the decades and even lately Tony Blair the erstwhile prime minister of England is involved we, we see him in Jerusalem off and on and stays at the American Colony Hotel and, and all these people Sarkozy and the European Union and, and uh, even here different administrations have tried one initiative after the other it's an insoluble problem because it's not a physical problem it's a spiritual problem And the powers of darkness are mounting a global assault against the Jewish people. Because they know better sometimes than even the church that they can frustrate the purpose of God by liquidating the Jewish people. And that's why through history there has been one program of liquidation after the other launched against them. Thank God the devil is not omnipotent, omnipresent, or omniscient. How many of you believe that? If you listen to some Christians, sometimes you would think he is. They sort of put him on a par with God, and they have this this dual struggle in their lives. A lot of what they're struggling against is not the devil, it's themselves. Amen? See, I tell folks, I remember once when I was a young preacher, <clears throat> and uh, preachers had, cars, you know, that were provided by the church, and uh, I had a Volkswagen Beetle. You never had a Volkswagen automatic. That was sacrilege. You couldn't even get them then. Stick, the real thing, stick. This is in, you know, 1970-something, 78. We had this house with a long driveway to the garage, and I used to get into my Volkswagen Beetle, let me tell you, I was, I mean, NASCAR had nothing on me, I used to put that thing in reverse, drop the clutch, foot on the accelerator, my friends, I used to go down that driveway, almost blind, and out there, it was, it was impressive, it was impressive. So one day I jumped in the car and I put my foot on the accelerator, dropped the clutch, and out we went. I went down that driveway, bang, into the gates. Not good. You see, I forgot to open them. I didn't miss, I didn't like swerve. I mean, I was good. I just forgot to open them. So as a young preacher, I jumped out the car and you know, in true crazy, goofball style, I said, I rebuke you, devil. <clears throat> I will never forget it, I'm telling you. A voice was the voice of God. You know, he's got a sense of humor. I don't walk with God in my pocket, and I doubt when, when people claim they do. So, I don't hear God speak to me every day, but that day he spoke to me. He said, You rebuke who? (laughs) I got the message. I was the devil. You see, open your eyes next time, stupid, and you won't hit the gate. And the devil is not omniscient or omnipotent or omnipresent, he still believes today that he can frustrate God's plan of eternal salvation by the destruction of the Jewish people. And listen to me. This is why God says, I will bless those who bless you. The greatest struggle of all of history is upon us. Why? It's for the salvation of, of the world, for your salvation. Is to bring the king back. They haven't returned just to live in Tel Aviv and, and, you know, be Jews in Israel. God has returned them with a promise of a spiritual recovery in the land. You can read it in Zechariah. And through that spiritual recovery, he will return them to himself. And then the Bible says they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Revelation picks up on Zechariah and says, Behold, he's coming. Every eye will see him, even the people who pierced him. Amen. So tonight, you cannot be disconnected from Abraham. We cannot sit here in the Cookville region of all good and just say, well, we just get on with church. It doesn't matter. Oh, it matters. It matters so much that the devil is working across the face of the earth every minute, every second of the day to mobilize a global consortium that will seek to dismantle the Jewish state. And as we gather here tonight, it's happening. It's happening. And we are that unique generation that's different from the generation of 100 years ago in church history because we are living in the transition period of the restoration of Israel to her land and the consequence of a spiritual recovery and the return of the Messiah. That makes us different from every other generation in church history. And it places upon us an obligation that is incredible. And while we have to be involved with everything, in local church life and practice, and we should, and we must be faithful to our local churches, it is absolutely essential that we do not forget Israel, that we pray for her now as never before, and we do everything possible to demonstrate the love of God to this people. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Amen.